May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth, and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Those are verses 31 to 35 of Psalm 104, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, October the 8th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm your host, John Green. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of Micah today. We skipped, for some reason, most of chapter 4 and then parts here, even, of chapter 5. Um, we're in Micah 5, verses 1 to 4 and 10 to 15. And then in Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, verses 16 to 25, and in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 25, verses 13 to 27. So Micah's, let me give you kind of the the, uh, the skinny on what happens in between yesterday's reading and today's. Largely what he's what he's saying, and, and which is I'm surprised that this is not included, and, and I'm, there's, there's different agendas, and I don't mean that necessarily in a bad way all the time for the way the... Um, the lectionary is put together. Now, sometimes I do believe there was an agenda and a nefarious agenda for skipping certain passages. Here, that's not necessarily the case. Here, what, what is promised through the prophet is, is that, that in contrast to the ones who are fat and happy today, God's going to take them down, take them out, and he's going to replace them with like the lame, which is to say those people who are outcasts today will ultimately inherit the land in ways that the leaders of today will not. So so the old order is passing away. Essentially, the new is um, is being established, will be established at that time. And so what he's talking about constantly in these passages is a remnant. But, but he's, he's castigating the leadership, telling them that they're going to be, into, be sent away into Babylon, and the Lord's going to rescue them there. It's basic salvation Israelite history. It, that he, he says, you're going to go to Babylon, you're going to be scattered there, God's people are going to be scattered all among, the remnant is going to be scattered all around the world, and then it's all ultimately going to be gathered back together. So that, that's what we just didn't read. <laughs> now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Bethlehem is the city of David. It's where David's from. That's the reason Jesus is born there. During the census that's taken, they had to re- return to their places of origin. And in that case, it was David. they were of Davidic line. So they go back to Bethlehem, and that's where Jesus is born. So that's the fulfillment of the prophecy that I just read. He's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He doesn't just refer to the prophecy that there'll be one of David's lines sitting on the throne. No, he's pointing beyond that. When he says ancient days, he's pointing back to foundational things. So this has always been the plan, is kind of what he's saying. And this is one who will come from of old. And in this looking at Bethlehem, which is little, too little to be among the clans of Judah, when he points in that direction, it's a, it's a continuation of the argument that I just told you about, where he would take those things that, that are weak and despised, and he would raise them up in the coming days. So 
Therefore, she shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy, even though we don't see all things in subjection to him right now. He is ultimately the fulfillment of that. We have the privilege of serving him as king now, recognizing him as king now. So we have the ability to live in his kingdom under his kingly rule. And as I've said all week, it's a, it's a matter of authority. Whose authority are we truly under? Well, only the one who has the power over life and death, and I mean eternal life. And so we need to recognize that we serve his kingdom. We serve the one Micah prophesied about. And we can dwell secure because he is great to the ends of the earth. But we won't see the fulfillment of that kingdom until his coming again. And in that day, declares the Lord, I'll cut off your horses from among you and I'll destroy your chariots and I'll cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortune. I'll cut off all your carved images and your pillars from among you. Those are the the foreign gods and you shall not bow down no more to the work of your hands. In other words, the idols that you've made with your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So he's ultimately declaring that, um, that, that everything is going to be brought low and that he will indeed be the king over all things. And, and that those who think they are powers and authorities now will ultimately be brought down to nothing. So... We know that to be true. And if we can just recognize in our own minds and in our own hearts that, that these things are all passing away, then we can have the confidence that we need to navigate this life as we watch it go to hell in a handbasket. We know that ultimately that is the, the entropy is the principle that governs all things. And therefore, at the end of the day, we know that this will pass away and then will come the everlasting kingdom led by our King Jesus. In the gospel today, Jesus says, now no one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed. No, he puts it on a stand so that those who may enter, who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that won't be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. I mean, we certainly live in a, in a time and an age that believes in, in incredible conspiracy theories. I've heard some of the craziest things that I would have ever imagined <laughs> in my life. Recently, I mean, you know, one of the things is on on one side, you have this bizarre idea about the the you know the um, oh the the dossier, steel dossier about Trump, and then on the on the other side, you had this weirdness that John F. Kennedy Jr. was still alive and he was Q and he was coming back and yada da da. I mean, th- there's this weird belief that that conspiracies are are possible. And and Jesus says here, nothing is hidden that won't be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, there are some things, certainly, that motives can be hidden, but grand conspiracies like JFK Jr. has been alive for the last 30 years or whatever. No, not likely. And then we can build rumors and speculation. And and if you just go to Twitter and you choose a side, you're going to hear the craziest conspiracy theories you've ever heard in your life, as though people were capable of keeping a secret, right? So, no, Jesus says, ultimately, everything's going to come to light. 
So whatever it is, don't worry about it. Ultimately, all things will be brought into the light. And, you know, certainly in, the, in my life, I've seen things being brought to light that, that have been covered for some long period of time. And, and it's constant. It's just the way things work is that that's the case. But Jesus says, I'm going to expose all things. Take care, then, how you hear. For the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. I like that. Even what he thinks he has doesn't belong to you. (laughs) The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we live in an illusion, an illusion that we have things, an illusion that that I can make a plan for tomorrow and count on that plan. Tomorrow's not guaranteed to me. And so we need to be careful in the day, the day that we're in, not put off everything until tomorrow because it's not guaranteed to you. Do the things you need to do today. Take care of business today. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside <clears throat> desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, is he dissing his mother and his brothers? No, he's not. He, he's saying, though, that, that those, even the familial relationships are, are redefined in the coming, in, in, the, in the kingdom. And, and those familial relationships are defined by those who hear the word of God and do it. So that, that's the important demarcation line that Jesus draws as far as how we're to have relationships with other people, even familial relationships are extended to everybody who hears and does. And that's something that we need to get our heads around. So what if your mother and your brothers, or whoever we're going to name there, whatever family relationship we're going to name, what if they don't hear the Word of God and do it? Well, then the good news should be that you have mother, brothers, sisters, fathers, whatever, that who do. And they are no less family, because we're all brought into, as adopted children, into the family of God. One day he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across the lake to the other side. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. He says, yeah, yeah you're right. You're exactly right. You are perishing without me. The reason I'm here is because you're perishing. This is an immediate danger, but yes, that's the whole reason I'm here. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. I mean, I just this has to be like the most amazing thing that you'll ever see in your life, right? He said to them, where's your faith? I mean, Jesus stands up in a boat. He looks, and they wake him up and say, hey, we're perishing. Got a big storm. They're bailing water out of the boat. Jesus stands up and (laughs) looks around and says, stop it. And the winds and the waves stopped. What authority? What authority? And and that's exactly their question at the end of it. They were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who is it then that he commands even winds and the water and they obey him? You know, it's it's a pretty amazing thing, right, that that the, the wind and the water obey. People, not so much. So what we consider to be inanimate things, obey. The wind and the water, those are inanimate, right? They don't, they don't have life. They're just, you know, one causes the other. We don't know what causes the wind, but we do know that the wind causes the waves. So those things obey him. 
The problem is humans that don't obey him. And Jesus' question is very simple. Where's your faith? It's the question that we could ask Christians over and over and over again. Because I see people in this season of time losing their minds. I mean, had people coming up to me that, that, that are committed on one side of the political spectrum saying, when this guy got elected, so do you think this is the rapture, the tribulation? No, I think it's a guy that you don't like who got elected to office. Where's your faith? Where is your faith? They're wringing their hands. They're giving up. They're saying, oh, this is going to, you know, whatever. No, God's in charge. Where is your faith? Be strong. Be courageous. Be bold. Don't lose heart. No, God's in charge. God's still on the throne. No matter which side of the political spectrum you're on, and people freak out either way. I mean, people completely freaked out over Trump. People completely freak out over Biden. And and then we're, we're stuck with Christians who are powerless because they're all about politics. And they forget that God's on the throne and he has given them commandments about how to live and what to do. Well, get about that work. Get your head out of all that other stuff and get into the work that you've been given to do by the only authority in heaven and on earth who has authority over your soul. So if you don't like the politics of the day, well, you can vote. You can be active where, where it's important to be active. But the reality is, is that, that we're about building a different kingdom. In the epistle, remember that Festus had become the new governor of the province, and so he's, his headquarters is down in Caesarea, which is the city of Caesar. So he is there, and, and he brings the Jews down to bring their charges against Paul, but he won't rule one way or another there. No, he says, let's go back to Jerusalem and do this. And Paul says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to Rome. As a Roman citizen, I have the authority and the ability to appeal to Rome, and that's what I want to do. I don't think I'm going to get a fair trial either here or in Jerusalem, because you know the truth, and you fail to rule, because you're afraid of them. So your authority is nothing. You've bargained it away because you want to please those people. Rather than do justice, you want to please those people. So you won't come to a conclusion about this. So he says, no, I want to go to Rome. So when some days had passed, the Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. He's king over a region. He, he is a vice regent for Caesar. So who is Bernice and Agrippa? Okay, they're Jews, right? They come from Herod the Great. They're of the Herodian dynasty. So Agrippa is the son of Herod the Great. And so now you get Agrippa coming. So he's his son. He's kind of, it, it's sort of been inherited. His role has been inherited. And who then who is Bernice? You know, you, you would think initially, okay, she's the queen, right? This is his wife. No, it's his sister. But, but there's a lot of speculation at that time from historians that there was more to their relationship than, than brother and sister. In fact, so much so that at one point, Bernice decided to get married to a guy in Cilicia, which is where Paul's from, which is where Felix was from, she decides to marry a guy who is a ruling authority there in order to quell the rumors of his incestuous relationship with her brother. She's already had two other marriages, including her father's brother, by whom she had two children. She's already had those two marriages. Now she, she uh, is with her brother. Rumors start to spin. She marries this other guy and leaves him almost right away and goes back to her brother. Well, is it any wonder that there were rumors about their relationship being a little more than, well, meets the eye, and certainly a little more than, well, is allowable. 
So after they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him with the death penalty. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face. So a, a trial before a jury of your peers. You, you need to be able to meet your accuser. And, and that's a principle that's enshrined in American justice. At, <coughs> and had the opportunity to make defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal, that that judgment seat, and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. I thought they were going to say all this other stuff, and they didn't. They brought other stuff. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's a very strange idea in Roman culture. You, you don't come back to life, not this kind of life, after death. That, that's not what they believed at all. It would be a totally different kind of thing. So he, he says, I don't know what to make of this. This is what they said, but then really what it was was just disputes over Jewish law. I didn't hear anything that, that involved me as a Roman governor to arbitrate this dispute. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul appealed, had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So he lays out what's happened. There's the history. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you'll hear him. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. That's the prominent men of the city of Caesarea. These would be Romans primarily. So you get the military tribunes, the prominent men of Caesarea, Agrippa and Bernice. And so this huge pomp and circumstance comes to to greet Paul. It seems very strange, to say the least, but it's because he's the king. And so he's going to get this... Thing. And, and how he could think this was going to go well, I have no earthly idea. Because if you remember, his father put John the Baptist to death because John was a man of unwavering truth who refused to bow down even in the face of a king, but asserted that truth before the king. And Paul was certainly a man very much like John the Baptist. He was even less afraid, if that's possible, than John the Baptist because he knew about the resurrection. So why they make this big show of coming down and why Agrippa and Bernice, who are Jews, believe this is going to go well, I have no earthly idea. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about the whole Jewish people petitioned to me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. He says, there's an outcry all across the region over which I have authority. And they all are shouting that this man doesn't deserve to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. I couldn't find a capital crime anywhere in this man, so I couldn't pronounce a death sentence without actually having him accused and convicted of committing a capital crime. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. So in other words, it seems like, that at least on an earthly level, that, that Festus had the ability to say no, 
to Paul. And there's evidence from historical documents and, and at that time that it wasn't any longer considered an absolute right that could be claimed, that actually the governor could decide whether or not to grant that request. It, it wasn't an absolute right. And so here Festus says, I decided not to do that. I decided um, I decided to do that. I mean, to say, okay, he'd go ahead. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. I don't even know what to put on a piece of paper telling Caesar what to do. I, don't, I can't even articulate the charges or the reason that he should even hear the case. You, you know, it's sort of, it's like he made, Paul made an appeal, and now here the judge is having to say, I, you know, the problem is, I don't even know how to tell Caesar what the issue at stake is or how to decide this thing because it doesn't have anything to do with Rome. So he says, Therefore, I've brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. He says, I don't want to look like a fool by sending this man up to Caesar without actually charging him with a crime. So I don't know what to do here. So I need your help, is what he's trying to say. And what he's really trying to do is to avoid having to do anything. He can now lay this off on Agrippa. By saying, I, I don't understand. And, and so he also has to know that at some level, Agrippa and Bernice are actually Jews. And so maybe they'll understand this dispute better than I can, because I can't make heads or tails of it. I don't know what to do with this guy. So we need to say something to Caesar so that Caesar can render some kind of a decision. But I don't know what to say. Maybe you will, because you share something in common with these people. Again, it, it's all down to authority. Now, did, did, did Festus really make that decision on his own? Well, he says he did. But at the same time, God's in charge. No matter what the circumstances and situations are in our lives that we find ourselves in, we can always take peace and comfort in the knowledge that God's in charge, that ultimately there's a throne above all thrones, there's a Lord above all lords, and a king above all kings, and that's him. And he's the one we serve. He's the one to whom we're responsible, and he's the lover of our souls. Now, if you can get a friendlier judge than that and a better witness than Jesus in your favor, well, good luck with that, because I don't think it's possible. I don't think it's possible. The one who will try you is the one who laid down his life for you because of his love for you. Remember that. And that's the reason John can say that perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with judgment. And in this we should have no fear because we stand before the ultimate judge, the arbiter of life and death, in a way that other people can't stand. We know the one who is the ruler of the wind and the waves, the one who created them by his voice in the beginning. He said, let there be. Now he says, stop it. They've continued to be under his control all this time. I wish that we as Christians could be that submitted to and that obedient to God's commands.